Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Queer SLP. We know it's been a little bit, but thanks for sticking with us. Yes, thanks for your patience. And our next guest, our next proud professional, actually, is quite famous, at least in the Instagram world. We're a little starstruck. Yeah, Yeah. I would say so. I was a little bit intimidated because this is also a podcaster in their own right. Right. Entrepreneur and... Right. She's a private practitioner a podcaster and has her own business teaching other SLPs and I think also OTs to be private clinicians, like how to become a private clinician. Also lesbian. And a lesbian. Yeah, can't forget that part. (laughs) Just like a quadruple whammy of amazingness and so fun to talk to. And her name is... Jenna Castro Casbon is on our show today. So uh, please enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed filming it and getting to know more of Jenna's story. I think a lot of you will probably feel inspired. So enjoy. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And today we have a new friend. Please introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Jenna Castro-Casbon, and my pronouns are also she, her. You are also famously known across the web as a different name. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm also known online as the independent clinician. I teach SLPs and OTs how to start, grow, and scale successful private practices. So yes, lots of people also know me as the independent clinician, um, but y'all can just call me Jenna. (laughs) Jenna's great. (laughs) Yeah. So again, welcome to the podcast. We have been trying (laughs) to get this episode (laughs) scheduled for months, actually since probably since we started the podcast, but life happens and here we are. So we will seize the day. Let's see where to start. I mean, like, most proud professional episodes we start at the beginning at the very beginning it reminds me of that one anastasia song at at the beginning or something about that journey anyway uh, anyway let's start at the beginning <laughs> yes let's start at the beginning before you were an slp tell us about where you came from all of that i was born in new orleans i'm a proud new orleanian I love New Orleans. New Orleans is a really fun place to grow up, but it's also more conservative. And New Orleans itself tends to be pretty liberal in a conservative state. And so, you know, I loved being from there and I loved growing up there, but I also couldn't wait to leave and go someplace else, Um, especially once, you know, I got older, realized I was gay and just like kind of couldn't wait to experience life somewhere else where I could be out and everything else. So going to all girls Catholic schools for my whole life didn't really help things much. I know you see in the movies, there's all kinds of gay Catholic schoolgirls, but like not at my school. (laughs) They just didn't, that didn't happen? Well, later, you know, later. Yeah. So, So were you not out when you were younger then? 
Well, no, I was actually. I started coming out when I was 16. Mm -hmm. And I told some friends at the all-girls Catholic school that I mentioned. Um, I obviously had a crush on one of the girls who did end up being gay and did end (gasps) up being my first girlfriend. So that was pretty fun. It was cute. But not till after we graduated. But nonetheless. um, But yeah, it was just kind of an interesting place. I also um, came out to like the guidance counselor and then actually the headmistress who was a nun because it was around the time. So this would have been an oh, this is a good story. This was in like 1997, which is also when Ellen came out in like the puppy episode and everything mm-hmm. else. So I was like, so that was kind of an interesting cultural time to be, well, whatever, queer, but also to be in high school. And so we must this be was, around the same age. I'm just turned 41, like a week okay. or two ago. All right. We are. Yes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So that was interesting. It was also the time where kids who were being bullied for being gay were also suing their schools. And that was a big thing in the late 90s. I don't know who, Natalie, do you remember that? I don't. No. Okay. Well, whatever. It was a, it was a thing. And so I, I was in high school and I was starting to like feel like people were sort of noticing or people like, I wasn't getting like super bullied or anything, but I was just like, you know, I just feel like I need to tell someone in case something happens. And so for whatever reason, I told the headmaster and who was this really nice nun. And she was like, totally cool with it. And was like, you know, you're safe here, like whatever, I got your back. And it was just so sweet and nice. So I had, you know, friends who were like, you know, totally supportive. I didn't, you know, tell everybody, but, um, but yeah, that was kind of the beginning of my coming out. And then um, I had that girl then became my girlfriend after college. And that was super cool. Um, and I told my parents around the time that I was 18, right when I was kind of going off to college, I decided to go to college at American University in Washington, D.C., which was great. It was a lot of fun, kind of. But I also didn't like it really as a school. And I also was homesick for the girlfriend. So I ended up transferring back um, after a year, but it was really nice to like go to like DC was like so liberal and it was just so much fun to, you know, then be able to join the gay club or it wasn't called that, but it was, you know, whatever that we called it back in those days. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was, that was a fun time of life, like kind of that young exploring kind of time. Random question and yeah. totally naive gay question here. Do lesbians tend to like, like I had a feeling when I was like in fourth grade, like so around eight years old, maybe a little bit older, especially when puberty <laughs> hit. <laughs> what what was your experience for both of you? Like, did you like, oh, later figure it out? Or was there like an inclination earlier on where you're like, mm, I don't know what this is. Uh, Natalie, you want to go? <laughs> Only in hindsight. So... I I grew up in a very straight kind of culture, a you know, small town. And it wasn't until I realized that I was lesbian at 20 that I could look back and be like, oh, yeah, that now middle school dances make a lot more sense. Like all the girls looking at all the boys and me being like, huh? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, so I guess the answer is yes, but it wasn't like at the time I recognized what I was experiencing because I had no role models. Right. 
Well, that's yeah. a good. So, Hector, I was a little bit more like you, and I would say that I was probably a kid. Um, I was definitely a tomboy, like classic tomboy. And I remember um, like playing house in like kindergarten and like wanting to basically be the dad, right? Like I wanted to like not really be the dad per se, but maybe be whatever the the hunter gatherer the hunter gatherer <laughs> correct and so i definitely remember that feeling and then i think i do remember sort of having like crushes on you know friends when i was a kid but i didn't really know that that's you know it's just more of an affinity right than like a crush but yeah i can i could say for me hector it was also as a child okay that was yeah i was just so interested because one i, I think well i'm not i forget natalie but i know i had the catholic experience as well and it was definitely not like oh cool i got you it was more like you're going to hell uh, so yeah we've all got that in common i was also raised catholic yeah so i was like oh well, great that the headmistress was able to be yeah that's really that's well it was wow. yeah i think too um it was a Oh, so this is like a, a chain of schools, but um, the Sacred Heart schools, they have them all over the U.S. Yeah, and yeah. the world. Right. And so and I think that they're a little bit more liberal of like a Catholic institution. So not like, you know, as liberal as Catholics can be. But anyway, <laughs> it was it was it, it, and that part of it was a positive experience. But I would definitely say that, like, my classmates were not necessarily like, you know, open, welcoming people. So you said you came out to your parents at like 18 when you were leaving the house. Yeah. Was that on purpose? Like, were you afraid that they were going to respond badly? Did they respond badly? Like, how did that so work funny. out for you? So here's how I sort, like, I was going to tell them. And then I just made every excuse in the world not to, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I kept setting yeah. dates. Like, I like was like, write little letters. Like, I practiced a thousand times. And then I, I think actually I technically did go off to college. Yeah, I did go off to college. I told, oh, I told my mom when I was on Christmas break. But really what happened was, is that I had a library book that I checked out in college and it was late and it was some sort of gay title, right? And they sent like a late notice home to my parents. So actually I got sort of outed by the college, but it totally worked out because it was like just what I needed to then like sort of have that conversation. And so it actually worked out awesome. But I but that's actually how it happened. It was like Christmas break. Outed by the librarian inadvertently. Librarian. <laughs> oh, oh, libraries. <laughs> Who knew? I know. And it was one of the fun things about college, I remember, was that all of a sudden you could do like papers about like gay stuff. And it was like, mm -hmm. fine, because it was college, right? Like, I remember I took a film course and we had to write a critique about a film and we could pick any film. And so at the time, I don't know if y'all remember the movie Better Than Chocolate, but it was out in... Oh, yeah. Natalie remembers it. <laughs> totally. So it, that movie would have come out in like 1999, 2000. Mm -hmm. And I got to write a paper for college about a lesbian movie. Like, how great was college? I loved it. Right. And so that was like a fun thing was like any paper that I could write that was had some sort of gay slant to it. Like so I was probably checking out a book that was probably like queer cinema or something. Right. And that, so that's that's what did it. But it worked out pretty well. Awesome. So during that time, were you thinking, oh, yes, I'm also going to be an SLP or did, did that whole life 
you know, decision come later? No, that came later. At the time, y'all will love this. I definitely wanted to be an FBI agent. I think because I wanted to hang out with the kind of chicks that are in the FBI in like movies about law enforcement. And wear suits. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's actually what it was. Um, So when I went to American, I, I majored in something that I don't know what it was called, but it was sort of like, it wasn't pre-law, but it was something justice or I don't know what it was. But then I transferred back home and then I discovered thinking about speech pathology when then, of course, I majored in psychology because I didn't know what I was doing. Everyone and did that. Everyone <laughs> did that. <laughs> and so in psychology class, when it was developmental psychology, they started talking about like language acquisition and then they started talking about like disordered language acquisition and then I had kind of one of those light bulb moments that was like, oh, my gosh, speech pathology. Maybe I should do that. My dad was disfluent as a child, and he used to always talk about his work with a speech pathologist. During college, my grandmother had a stroke, and so then she was working with a speech pathologist. So I kind of got to see sort of pediatric and adult speech pathology, and they didn't have communication disorders. Then I transferred back to Loyola University in New Orleans. They didn't have calm disorders and so, and I was too late anyway, it was like a junior or something. I couldn't really switch majors anyway. So that's when I started applying to grad schools. And again, I couldn't, like, I had left New Orleans and then come back. And now it was like, no, I am going <laughs> and going like for good. And I'd always wanted to be in Boston, right? I just thought like Boston has to be this like awesome queer liberal place. Like that's where I want to go. And so I applied to like a couple different schools, but like I really wanted to go to Boston. And um, I ended up getting into um, Emerson College in Boston and also University of Virginia. And those are the only two schools I went to. Bo- I went to Emerson to check it out, loved it, signed up. And that's how I ended up in Boston. And you haven't left since. And I haven't left since. We did have a, a okay. quick stint in New Orleans, um, which I can tell you all about later. But after after my wife and I got married, we moved down to New Orleans again for about a year and a half. But that is how I ended up in Boston for grad school. And then I've mostly been here ever since. Okay. So you're, you know, going to grad school, an out lesbian at this point, previously yeah. dated high school <laughs> lover. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> High school lover <laughs> turned into <laughs> non-high school lover. But how, like, what was that experience like for you? You know, were you out in your program? And what yeah. was it like, you know, as a grad student um, during that yeah. time? Yeah. So this was this is a fun story, too, is that on the very first day of, of grad school, I had to do the prereqs because I had majored in psychology. So I showed up in Boston um, and the summer before, me and whoever else were kind of you know, non—I forget what you call them, like non-majors or whatever—that the other major people had to do our prereqs. Now they do, of course, all that stuff online. But at the time, it was an in-person kind of a thing, and it was like literally the first day, and we were, you know, walking to class or to eat or something like that, and we just, you know, paired up walking with people. And I said something about—I must have alluded to having a partner or something. And they said, oh, what does your boyfriend do? And it was like one of those moments where you're like, okay, do I do this or do I not do this? Right. And it was almost like the time, Mm -hmm. like time stood still. Right. And I was, I just felt myself weighing the decision in my head. Right. Like if I 
come out now, which is the right decision because I've been out for years and like I have a girlfriend, right? Or do I not? Because like I don't really know these people and whatever. But then it's like, no, then you're going to have to backtrack and then come out later. And that's going to be way messier, right? So I was just like, oh, it's actually a girlfriend. And they didn't miss a beat. They're like, oh, cool. What's her name? And then that was it. And then, you know, all of my, cause it's, you know, SLP, you know, there's mostly females in the program. Mm -hmm. We actually, I think had, did end up having two guys in our class, but like all the girls were super cool and it really was, it wasn't an issue and it was awesome. But I just remember that like first day of being like, okay, here's, here we go. Like, are you, you're in a new environment. Like, are you doing this or you're not? (laughs) And, and I did it and it was such a good decision, right? Like, it's just so good, especially when you get in a new environment, like just come out at the beginning. It'll be so much easier. Especially like in the school environment, because there's protections in place, at least um, if it's, you know, like a a public university, Uh, you know, I totally get that. Were the two guys that were in your program, do you know if they were gay? (laughs) They weren't. One of them was a creepy as hell straight dude. He was the worst. Oh, my God. He actually failed out, and it was a blessing for everyone. Okay. And the other guy um, was straight and is awesome and... Yeah, but it, but yeah, I oh there was one other lesbian actually in my cohort, and I was like, oh, this is great, like we're gonna be friends. And then she was like, so not friendly. I was like, come on, like, womp, womp. like come on, literally sister. sister. <laughs> but like sometimes that happens. Like sometimes you're like, oh hey, other queer person, yeah. and they're like, Ugh. like I don't want to talk to you, and it's like, but okay, I thought we were like, gonna be friends. Well, it's kind of like when, when like your family or a friend is like, oh, you'll like so-and-so because they're yeah. also gay and then you meet them. And you're well, like, it's almost like yeah. we're so used to being tokenized that you're like, well, I am the token and there can only be one like Highlander. Um, <laughs> you know, totally. So that's that same, that same feeling in a social situation. I hope people appreciate that Highlander. <laughs> Highlander. <laughs> uh, cool. So it sounds like, you know, like things went well as far as like academics go. Yeah. The professors were all, were all cool about, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was a non-issue, right? It was just what I hoped that things would be like in Boston, like liberal Boston, that basically no one would care. And that was, I mean, that's always been my experience here. That was my experience too. When I went to, I went to grad school in Boston too. I know it's probably not everyone's experience, but I agree. So yeah. We get through grad school. We're in SLP. Yeah. Woo, celebration. What was it like for you entering into yeah. the professional world as a lesbian? You know, did you still have that same, like, got to jump in and, you know, be out now? Or was there more hesitance? I, there was a little bit more hesitance, if I remember correctly. I think it took me like a couple of months to start to come out because I just wasn't sure, I think, actually about what the working world was like. Like I had, you know, had like little jobs, but not like a real professional job. Right. And so I do actually remember waiting for a little bit, but not really too long, you know, in the same way that when you just start to meet coworkers and y'all know how it is when you're an SLP, like you don't have normal lunch with people and you don't really (laughs) have sometimes like socialization opportunities. So it just sort of like, I felt like it didn't come up right away, but I do remember realizing like, you, you gotta make this come up. Like if it's not coming up naturally, 
you better figure out a way to make it happen. And at the time, then me and high school girlfriend were not together anymore. And I feel like it's always easier to just, you know, throw in my, you know, my girlfriend or like, you know, oh, I'm going to meet meet her, whatever, something like where you can drop some pronouns in there. And I didn't have that. But then I also didn't want to like make up a fake girlfriend because that's also weird, right? So, (laughs) but I do remember like being like, Jenna, you got to, like make this happen. And so then I kind of weaved it into conversation and then it was also totally fine and affirming and great. What was your setting when you did your CF? Oh, great question. Um, Outpatient rehab. So I worked at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston um, in the outpatient department. So all, it was all like stroke and brain injury and all, you know, um, neurocognitive stuff, which I love. And so that was... That was, but I remember also, this is a funny story. I had this woman who had aphasia and we were, you know, in a set session, I was doing whatever we were doing. And she like looked at me and she's like, you, you gay. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and like, I like panicked. I didn't know what to say. And I was like, uh, yeah. And she's like, my daughter, gay. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but again, it was like, she was like super aphasic. I just didn't know where she, she was you. going. <laughs> like, honestly, her she aphasic gaydar was so on. <laughs> it was so on. But I also remember being like, oh my gosh, like, is it okay to come out to patients? Like, it was right. like, kind of like thinking about that, like, Oh, you know, what, like work life or not, not boundaries, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm, a pretty open person, but all of a sudden I was like, Oh my gosh, like, should I have said no? Like, should I have just deflected it and be like, Oh, we're not here to talk about me, you know, Mm, (laughs) or whatever. But, (laughs) but then it just turned out that like, she had a gay daughter who I, you know, had, then I had really short hair at the time. I probably just looked like her gay daughter. And, um, and then I was like, Oh my God, is she going to like try to set me up with her gay daughter or something? But luckily it didn't go there, but (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, you got uh, discharged and you never saw her again. Yeah, but, um, basically. First of all, score on getting a medical placement like that for yeah, your yeah. CF, like what yeah. a dream for a lot of people. Oftentimes it you're told does. right out the gate that'll yeah. never happen. So, yeah, uh, awesome. it worked out. It was like a cool circumstance where, you know, someone was I had done my um, placement there and someone was moving and like, I still had to interview and whatnot, but like, it was a little bit, I think they probably also hired me. Like I already knew the paperwork. I already had established patients. Like I could kind of fit in there. And so it worked out pretty well. Awesome. So how long were you there before you, I mean, did you go to the schools and then when did you eventually transition to private? So when I was at Spalding, I had two coworkers who had their own private practices on the side. And I didn't really know that they did. And I also didn't know that that was a thing. And so one day we actually were having lunch, like a regular sit down lunch where you cannot talk about other stuff. And they started talking about their private practices. And I was like, wait, y'all have private practices? (laughs) And they were like, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, tell me about that. And so they proceeded to tell me about how, like, they saw client. They worked part time, so they saw clients on the other days. They saw clients in the client's home or in a community location. They did like um, private pay only. It was all these things that I was like, wait a minute, like you can do this part time. 
you can see clients in there. Like you don't have to have a brick and mortar. You can do private pay. Like I had all of these questions and they're like, yeah, they're like, you should do it too. And I was like, I'm 26. (laughs) What do you mean I should do it too? (laughs) Like, don't you have to wait to like be older? And they're like, no, you're, you're great. Like you're doing a really good job. You know, you, you have something to bring to the table. You know, has anyone ever asked you if you treat private clients? And I was like, well, yeah, but I've always referred them to like one of you. And they're like, let's, we'll help you get set up. Like next time say yes. And I was like, okay. So that's, that's really how my private practice started was, you know, was on the side of my job at Spalding. And really because two friends of mine, you know, saw, saw more in me than I saw in myself and were, you know, willing to mentor me to get set up and started and, and on my way. And that's, that's really how the whole thing happened. And then over time, like I, I stayed at Spalding for, for a good while and like my private caseload went up and then I started cutting down my hours as my private caseload grew. And then, um, during that time was also when I got married. So, um, after grad school, I met my, my now wife, Sarah on, oh, this is funny. Well, I hope y'all think this is funny. People always ask, where did you meet? Right? I love to say Christian Mingle. No. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so happy. <laughs> That's it's excellent. not true, but it totally messes people. People are like, oh my uh, God, really? And I'm like, yes. no, okay. It was on match.com. But you know, at the time oh, Christian Mingle sounds amazing. It sounds so right? wonderful. It drives Sarah story. crazy when I say that, right? Because I'm always I try to say it so smooth, which I like don't half the time. Anyway. But um but so she and I, you know, met, dated for a while in that part of the story. Then we got married. And she's from Boston and never she went to Northeastern and so had never gone anywhere for, you know, school or whatever. And so we decided to move to New Orleans for a year and a half um, because I wanted to kind of go back home and be with my family a little bit. And we wanted to have kind of like a newlywed adventure, so to speak. So we moved back to New Orleans. And then I basically took my private practice with me in a way I I did telepractice, like back way when telepractice was like not something that people were doing. But I kept most of my private clients from Boston and I would see them in Louisiana because I retained my mass license. And so that was a cool way for me to continue my private practice, but then down in New Orleans. What year was this? This was um, 2010. Okay. 2010, 2011. Wow. That's pretty early. Yeah. Then that was a, that's another fun story I could tell is that, so then I started working at a skilled nursing facility and I was back in that situation where here I'm going to be with new coworkers who like don't know me. And then I'm like, okay, and this is the South. Like I remember being in the South, <laughs> like, is this going to be warm and welcoming? Is this going to be awful? I don't know. And so um, when I was actually getting interviewed, people there have terrible boundaries, by the way, over generalization. But the person interviewing me, who was the director of rehab, who was an OT, um, saw my wedding ring and asked me during the interview what my husband did for work, which like you're not supposed to ask anything like that in an interview. Yeah. But she was kind of a that should have been a red flag that she was kind of a disaster manager. But nonetheless, 
I was like, again, I was like, oh, my wife is a pediatric physical therapist. And then she actually didn't miss a beat. And she's like, well, does she want a job too? And I was like, no, she works with kids, but thank you. <laughs> and a um, sniff. Do you want and a sniff? They're yeah, always looking. Sure. They're always looking. They are always looking. It's true. So so then I started working in, there and it was the same thing. Like I didn't come out right away and I was sort of like trying to figure out like what the situation was. And then we it was um, one of my coworkers was pregnant and they were doing like a potluck for her. And so my wife, Sarah, is like, hey, do you want me to make those cupcakes? Like, I don't I don't bake for shit. Right. So she's like, do you want me to bake something for you to bring to the potluck? And I was like, yes, please. That would be great. So then that was also my opportunity to be like, oh, my wife made these. Right. Like, oh, you want a cupcake? My wife made them. And they were like, oh, my God, these are the best cupcakes we've ever had. Like, thank your wife. I need the recipe. So then that worked out really nicely. So if anyone needs to come out to people, bring them baked goods, right? No one can say no to a really good baked good, even if it's from your same-sex partner. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just lull them into a sugar coma. Right. Exactly. And then half of my coworkers also then ended up being queer, which was such a surprise to me because like sometimes my gaydar is no good. And I was like, wait, this is you, you and you too. Like, so anyway, it ended up that like half of the people I worked with were gay, but I didn't notice that or something at the beginning. So that ended up being actually just like another nice situation of you know, getting to know other queer people. Oh, and then because I worked at, you know, the nursing home, I got to meet these really cute old lesbians who were in their 90s. They were in their 90s. They had been together, y'all, since before World War II. Wow. That's amazing. Their names were Millie and Alma, and they were awesome. Like one of them had really bad dementia and the other one had macular degeneration and couldn't see anything. So Millie, I would buy Millie all of these treats. Like she had such a sugar tooth and I would just get her all kinds of candy. I would, I bought her so much stuff that then, then she's like, my pajamas don't fit anymore. Can you buy me some new pajamas? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I can. Cause I hope if I get you know, really old at the nursing home and eat too much treats that someone buys me some better fitting pajamas. It's it's a good, you know, philosophy of life. If you eat too That's much right. sweets, just buy bigger pants. You just need bigger pants. <laughs> totally. So they were like, that was really cool because then like I was able to talk to them. Well, at least one of them anyway, about like their life as like, you know, queer women from bef- like, you know, literally before World War II. And so that was also just kind of a cool experience to get to know, like, an elderly lesbian couple. Like, you, you, Natalie, you said something earlier about, like, not having role models. Like, I definitely don't think I had role models, like, along the way. But that was a really cool, you know, set of people to get to know, like, early in my marriage and whatnot. Like, hey, here's what it could look like if you're together for, like, 50-something years. <laughs> it was really beautiful. So you're... Over there for a year and a half. Yep. At this point, when do you decide to go full private and like no longer work in any setting besides? Yeah. So not quite yet, but that's coming soon. So um, at, I moved, we moved back to Boston because mm-hmm. one of the things I had really wanted to do, you know, so I graduated from Emerson College, which I loved as a grad student. And I always wanted to be a clinical instructor. I love students. I love teaching. And so I wanted to be able to 
to do some clinical supervision. So one of the reasons why we moved back was because there was an opening for a part-time clinical instructor. And so I was like, that's perfect. I'll do that and I'll have my practice. And then I had also, in the meantime, started, founded the independent clinician and basically started selling materials online to teach other people how to start their practices. So there for a while, I was real busy and I had like the day job at Emerson as a clinical instructor, my own private practice, which I had, you know, resumed in-person services with a lot of those people from telepractice and then also gotten new ones. Then I was also growing the independent clinician at night. <laughs> and then um, Sarah and I decided to have kids. So then we had like, you know, one child and then three years later we had another one. And so, you know, during that time is where then I also cut down my hours at Emerson to, to not a lot, beefed up my private practice and also really beefed up um, the independent clinician to, again, be teaching more people how to have private practices. I decided to scale that business so that I could have a greater impact than I could in my own private practice where I was limited by how many people I could work with versus I could help infinite amounts of SLPs and OTs start their practices and basically be able to kind of vicariously help the clients that they see that I wasn't able to directly say. And when do you sleep? I don't sleep much. <laughs> I just have, um. a, I get a lot of stuff done. I don't know. I have, I have, I have ADD. I get lots of stuff done at random times. Somehow it all works out. So you went kind of into academia for a little bit. Um, yeah. Was that any different, you know, as far as like being a lesbian and, and a clinician and and having that role as a mentor, essentially? I just kept being out. Like, I just kept trying to like, I also wanted to be now. The other thing, um, you know, Natalie and I, we talked about role models a couple of times. Like, I just also wanted to be potentially a role model for someone else feeling like I didn't necessarily have you know, role models for myself, right? So it's like, okay, if I can be out and other people can see someone who's out and proud, like, that's awesome. Like, I want to be that for somebody else. So same thing when I started working at Emerson, they already knew me from before. So, you know, there was no issue with, you know, faculty and anything, but for grad students, you know, like I really, I couldn't wait, like I did have a little office and I couldn't wait to like put a pride flag outside of my office, right. That said like safe space or whatever it said on it. Like I just had wanted to see something like that, back when I was like at the Catholic school growing up that to then be able to have my own place where people would see it. Like I, you know, I loved when, when stu I could tell students were doing tours, right. And Emerson is a very queer place. <laughs> and so I knew that people were like, Oh, look at that, whatever. But anyway, so that was kind of fun. But one of the things that I got to be a part of actually was the creating of our gender affirming voice clinic. So Emerson was the first campus in Boston to have a dedicated gender affirming voice clinic. And we started with, you know, one Emerson student and one, it was actually a, a grad student who helped get it started. We had, we started with one, one Emerson student, you know, getting therapy. And then over time it was like, okay, one became two, became four. And now it's a huge part of their clinic. And so it was really cool to be a part of the, you know, foundation of that. And it's just grown exponentially since I was a part of it. And I think that that's awesome. Did, was there any kind of particular challenges that you faced opening a clinic like that? Did, you know, was it 
smooth sailing were there? I think it was mostly smooth sailing. I think that the clinic director at the time was wanted to do it, but was also like, she didn't move very fast. Like I'm a, I'm a fast mover. (laughs) I'm like, okay, (laughs) let's get this thing up. I was like, there's a need, there's demand. Like, I know that we're still kind of learning how to do this, but I think people would rather work with eager people who are learning than like nothing. And so I think that we started off really slowly but now um, it's a new clinic director and we've hired, you know, new people just specifically for this clinic. And so it's grown a ton since then. But that, again, that was just a really cool thing to be a part of. Do you think that the hesitance was just a lack of knowledge about that kind of case? Yeah, I think so. I think that people yeah. didn't want to do it. You know how SLPs are. Nobody wants to make a mistake, right? So people don't want to do it wrong. But sometimes, I mean, I see this all the time in in my work trying to help people start up private practices. It's like people are so fearful of making a mistake that they sometimes like don't push through and just do it. Right. And so I think you sometimes have to weigh like, can I learn some stuff as I'm going? And like it was it was brand. So this would have been probably 2012. Like that was a long time ago. Like, you know, when if you look at the you know, every year for um, the ASHA convention, like it's, you know, maybe there was one thing and maybe it was just one poster session and then like five poster sessions and then an actual talk. And then, you know what I mean? Like, it's just really, I feel like in the last couple of years really gained a lot of traction, but this was kind of back before that was taking place. Yeah. I don't even remember when it was added to the code of ethics, you know, that that yeah. um, gender affirming voice was, you know, within our scope, but I mean, it's so hard yeah. not to just compare that experience to what's happening right now in BYU. Right. Like, I That's mean, right. it was like, whoo. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, kudos. Yeah. Well, and for, for the listeners who don't, yeah. aren't aware, right, Brigham Young University is um, under the microscope right now because they eliminated their transgender voice yeah. clinic or their patients they released them or dismissed yeah. them and which is just absolutely yeah. horrifying. Um, and I want to give Asha kudos for um, their swift yeah. response. Um, I think there needs to be more of that yeah. scrutiny in other clinics. Totally agree. How, how speedy um, it was. I, I was telling a friend, I was yeah. like, the gays make moves. Yeah. Trust, <laughs> trust in that. Yes, like, right. if you want movement, it'll happen. But um, we're we're gonna right. say something. But like, about I remember it, we were like yeah. begging for something to be said about BLM when that was happening, you know. Yes. And so this, you know, I'm I'm hoping that this is a uh, a trend. You know, cross those fingers that when call the action, yeah. that they will you know follow suit. But yeah, kudos to Asha. Yeah. Um, let's see, you know, yeah. and thoughts yeah. for those clients that are. Uh, yeah. essentially abandoned they're dealing with client right. abandon- a client abandonment right now so that's that's, right. that's traumatic um totally so yeah. anyway with that in mind you you know transitioned out of the schools you're yeah. doing full private you're actually yeah. moving toward probably less private practice and that's more right. you know like running the independent clinician like Right. Um, specifically, and then having a child on top of that. Totally. Um, two, and two, they've got two, two, two young boys two. who are a handful all the time. They're awesome, but they're also, they're, 
busy kids, but yeah, Yeah. but it's, it's been a really fun time, right? Like it's, it's, you know, I feel like in terms of, you know, private practice information, there just wasn't anything out there, right? There, there wasn't anything out there. And then the stuff that was out there, I think scared people. And so I was like, you know what, why don't I really, uh, I'm a helping people person at my core. Why don't I help people? Like this is how I figured it out. This is how my mentors helped me. There's so many people who don't have that. They don't have someone to, to help them do it. They don't have someone to show them, you know, the steps and whatnot. Like I can fill that space, you know, in the SLP community. And so that's really, you know, what I've been able to do. And I'm proud of that, right? I've had um, close to 2000 people go through my Start Your Private Practice program, which is incredible, right? They're they're all, they're SLPs and a handful of OTs. We're growing with OTs, but it's mostly SLPs at this point. But they're people who are really, you know, frustrated with their jobs. They're feeling stuck and feeling like, you know, um, they wish they had more control over their caseload. They wish they had more income. You know, all the things that they kind of thought they'd have more flexibility in the field, they then find out that they don't really have that, right? And so, you know, whether my people, a lot of them start private practices on the side, which is just what I did, but I have also another huge set of people who are just like, nope, I'm quitting my job. I'm going all in on my private practice. Like, tell me what to do, Jenna. (laughs) And I tell them what to do. They get up and running and, and now this is their new life. And like it, my favorite thing is like to see the student wins. Like people post, you know, comments on our private Facebook group all the time. Like I quit my job. I'm now making the same amount as I did in the schools. I've doubled my school salary. You know, I'm able to take my child to midweek, midday ballet classes. And I'm so grateful. Right. So like, I don't think of private practice as a setting, as much as a vehicle to really get you where you want to go, right? You're creating your own setting and you're creating something that works for you because for a lot of people, there's things that just don't work for them in you know hospitals or schools or early interventions or even other people's private practices. And so creating their own space like is what really works for a lot of people. And so it's pretty cool. And right now, especially, you know, with like the great resignation and everything, like, People are really pursuing private practice now more than ever. And it feels good to have like a place and to have a community for people to go and to get that knowledge and to get that support as they're navigating this new thing for them. Do you feel like a big part of what you do is like just essentially demystify imposter syndrome? (laughs) Because I feel like that seems like in my mind... I will. I we. I even still am part of that. Like, oh, you don't have enough skill yet to do that, or yeah. you know, you're not. You don't have enough mastery to take on, you know, and and essentially get paid, right? What you're worth, <laughs> um, and right. what your knowledge and training is worth. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like that's a big part of what you're doing? Is like supporting yeah. people through that whole like getting rid of a p- imposter syndrome. Huge, right? There's so many people who say like, oh, you know, my husband's been telling me to do this for years. My dad's been telling me to. It's the problem is usually that the SLP doesn't feel like they are capable or that they are worthy or that they are ready. But, you know, you're working for someone else, right? Someone else has employed you. Someone else has decided that you're ready. Someone else is paying you to provide the service, 
So, you know, at some point you kind of have to realize that, you know, as long as you have something to bring to the table, as long as you have knowledge and skills to help someone out, why not do that for yourself versus do it for an employer that's going to put a lot of restrictions on what you can do? They are going to decide your pay. They're going to decide how many people are on your caseload, like, and what kinds of clients you get to see. It feels really good to be able to take back that control and be like, no, I just want to do gender affirming voice, or I just want to do childhood apraxia speech, and I don't want to work on Fridays, or I don't want to work early in the morning because I want to get my kids off to school, right? So, you know, it feels really good to take back that control and say, listen, I'm going to make something that works for me, and I'm going to get paid well for it. No one else is going to tell me how I can, you know, live my life or control my schedule or whatever, right? So to be able to really uncap your income is also very freeing to people, right? If you work in the schools, they're just going to keep putting more people on your caseload. You don't get paid more money the more people that are on your caseload, right? Nope, nope. Nope, okay, right? But if you have your own practice, like if you want to earn more, you just see more clients, right? You literally do get paid per session that you do versus like, it's like the opposite of that in most other settings. Right. And so that's kind of, that is what I do a lot of, you know, just helping people think differently about this, that it doesn't have to be this big, scary thing. You don't have to have a brick and mortar, right? You can see people either in person or via telepractice, you know, insurance isn't as scary as people think it is. It takes practice. You have to learn how to do it. But like you've learned how to do any number of other things. You can learn how to do this too. We're smart people, right? Mm -hmm. And so you absolutely can learn how to do it. You just have to do it. Right. So I have a question and it might take a little explanation, but go for it. In thinking about what you just said about, you know, private practice and demystifying things and you just have to go for it, right? I have often considered like thought that LGBT people, we are challenged in a different way than people who are straight, right? Just by being ourselves. Do you feel like, as a queer person, that that has helped you to sort of um, jump into something fearlessly? Or do you think it's been more of a hindrance, like you feel more afraid of doing something? Oh, no. It has definitely made me more fearless, I would say. Yeah. Right. I think it's it's also made me, like, one of the biggest, th- well, I think my superpower is creating communities and safe spaces. And so, you know, if anyone is a part of any of my Facebook groups, whether they're, you know, my free SLP private practice beginners group or my paid groups, like, you know how, like, inclusive and welcoming and supportive and all that kind of stuff, the communities that I create are, right? Like there's so many Facebook groups that are awful, like mean girls, nasty, you know, catty shit. Like I don't put up with any of that, right? You come into any of my spaces, it's friendly, it's warm, it's supportive. And like, I think that comes from being gay. Like I wanted to make sure, I want to make sure that other people you know, and maybe this goes back to high school where I, you know, didn't feel like I had a safe space. And so I want to make sure that other people feel 
safe as they're navigating something new. And in this case, it happens to be a private practice. But I think that that's, I think that that's important. I will say you reminded me of, a, of another story I could tell really quickly about a, a private client that I had um, who was Mormon. And um, this was around the time that I was getting married. And it was a, a, a high profile Mormon, I'll say. And um, I was really, I did not come out to him. And I was, it was um, the most, it was a kind of a financial decision too. Like I was getting married. I, you know, was using a lot of my early private practice money for the wedding. And I um, remember being like, I just don't feel comfortable coming out to him because, you know, he's a pretty devout Mormon. And so that, then it came time to go on my honeymoon, though, and I had to be like, well, I'm going away for two weeks on vacation. And but I, I didn't say anything about getting married is why I was going on vacation for two weeks. And so I do. And I remember being like kind of ashamed about that because I was out in every other aspect. So I was getting married to a woman. Right. And it wasn't so much about like my you know, the private practice per se, but like, I was like, I felt guilty about it. I felt sort of like I was taking money that in a weird way, but I also just felt like, you know what, I'm getting married. I need the cash right now. You know, it is what it is. Like he doesn't need to know anything about my personal life, but I do remember feeling conflicted about that at the time. Hmm. I have a question. It's similar to Natalie's, but on the side of like your your amazing work ethic um yeah. oftentimes especially uh, i i know that gay men are known for this to kind of like overcompensate in their work lives professional lives yeah. and being highly capable so that they are not looked at for this one area of their lives that they can be looked down or judged for do yeah. you feel like as like you are a you know a a business owner you are your own boss like do you feel some of that is part of that or, or or what are your what is your experience with that i definitely think i definitely work hard i would not necessarily i don't necessarily know that i'm overcompensating in that way um I do. This is sort of funny. I do like right now in our interview, like I'm like wearing a hoodie, like, you know, my hair is all whatever. Like I do sometimes try to look nicer. Like I feel like, too, there's like the stereotype of like the perfect private practice owner. Right. Who's like super pretty and skinny and has great hair and makeup and whatever. And like that's just not me. Right. And so if I am if I am trying to sell people on this idea that there's a new way to be in private practice and you don't have to do things like the old or perfect way to do it, then what better way actually to show up as like a real person who isn't that stereotypical private practice owner, right? Like if I'm trying to, to tell people that like you can, you can be, you don't have to be again, like pretty skinny, white, rich, whatever, to have a private practice, like, then, then I feel totally comfortable being, you know, who I am, which is, you know, a sporty, overweight, like, whatever, you know, person who also is a business owner of a now a pretty big company. 
So, you know, I feel I feel good about that. But there are times where I'm like, oh, Jenna, like maybe you should look a little bit nicer. And sometimes I get nicer and sometimes I don't. (laughs) (laughs) At least it's your choice. That's the thing is that there's not an external pressure to do that. Nothing. Awesome. For the most part, I'm noticing a big difference in your experience. uh, Having worked solely with adults your entire career. Um, I find it's so different than the, the, like the vulnerability that I feel having only worked in pediatrics, especially as a male, a gay male SLP. Do you think that is like a thing? Uh, or am I just like pulling random, (laughs) you know, connections here? Cause I think for me, there's that always that fear of being labeled as a pedophile, you know, being labeled as a pervert. Um, yeah. I don't know if that is the same experience for, you know, geriatric SLPs or even private SLPs in, in general. I'm I'm going to say that I haven't personally felt that way. Like, I think I haven't tried, you know, it's not that I've held back a ton, but like, you know how, like, you know, sometimes you're with people who just like, you know, especially say like, you know, a stereotypical straight woman who might just gush about her boyfriend all the time, right? Or say all this stuff about her husband, right? Like, so I feel like I probably like hold back a little bit sometimes in like the amount that I talk about, you know, my spouse or whatever. But again, I think it also might have to do with where people live, right? Like I just happen to live in this like super liberal area where it's it's literally just a non-issue. Like I remember when I first moved to Boston, I was like, where's the gay community center? And people are like, oh, like, we don't have one here. Like, we don't need one. It's a zip code. And I was like, <laughs> yes. Just oh. walk down there on the street and say hello yeah. to your community. But it was, like, so funny that it was just, like, not a thing. The other thing that was weird to me when I first moved to Boston was there was no, like, gay bars. It was, like, gay nights. Like, the gay night that. would rotate at different places. Like, what was that? Yes. That's yeah, a thing. It was weird. Like that in, it's like that in Seattle, too. I mean, at least for the lesbians. There's oh, my God. Like, Natalie, we were probably there at the same time. Like, like what the hell were. is this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just very weird. It was was very there not weird. a need? Is that why? Oh, or is no, it because you know, everybody... Need. Or are people just like, we love gays everywhere, so it's, you get one night. <laughs> it's gonna be like it's like Thursday it's night. Weird. This yes. random bar is the lesbian... Night. Yes. And Friday night was somewhere else and Saturday night. And then the rest of the, if you went there on the wrong night, you were there on the wrong night. It was pretty obvious. But it's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, there was like a couple of like gay, gay male bars, but like the lesbians had to switch nights and it was all yeah. weird. But, but I yeah. mean, I think your, your original question was sort of about like holding back, you know, professionally. And um, I'd say that, that hasn't really been my experience, but I can completely see, you know, why that would be the experience of people who work in pediatrics and particularly males. Do you think our job or our field specifically does a good job of preparing people for that? And if yes or no, what could like the independent clinician do to support something like that? What do you think? Or, or do you already have something like that? I guess I don't have anything specifically, but I do tell I do teach people to start their private practices and lead with their values, that whatever your values are to really lead with that. I have an awesome guest who was on my podcast, who was in my program, who y'all should have on the show. Her name's Emily McCullough. 
And she has a private practice in Austin, Texas, that um, is marketed toward um, queer kids and teens. And so that's like the she sees other people, but those are, you know, that's who she's like, you know, kind of most inclusive of, let's say. And so she's a great example of someone who, again, like didn't wanted to make sure that she was offering inclusive um, services. And so she started her private practice like with that as her value. Right. And so um, I think that that's pretty cool. So. I do talk a little bit in my programs about like just, you know, being who you are, attracting the right types of people, you know, whoever, you know, that is. But I mean, I I think it's important just to be, you know, whoever you are, right? Like it's like who no one has time. And I know that, you know, as different people have, you know, different circumstances, but, you know, I just, I've been very lucky, right? I've been very lucky. And so I sort of, you know, just, keep moving forward with like, let me just be a role model for, you know, queer people or, you know, even just like a female business owners, right? There's not that many successful famous female business owners. And I happen to be one of them. And so I want to make sure that I'm also, you know, being a role model, you know, for that community. So I think I try to be as good of a role model as I can all the time. And maybe that's where the overworking Hector comes in, where it's like, you know, let me do a lot of this work, but I'm, I don't know. I'm passionate. I love this stuff. I love what I do. I feel so hashtag blessed to, um, (laughs) to have found a different calling, right? Like my original calling was to help, you know, adults with stroke and brain injuries. And then I had like kind of another calling to help grad students and to help, you know, SLPs. And then, but my, my real calling now is to help SLPs, you know, become successful private practitioners. They're now my favorite, you know, kind of client or whatever. Right. And so, and again, I've been able to have a much bigger impact than I could ever have like in my own local private practice by being to help be able to help thousands of SLPs who then in turn serve many more thousands of clients through their own private practices. Right. So I don't know. That's the way that I've found a way to make an impact in the world. And it has also come with with income, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, I, just, I really like what I do. And I get up every morning and I do it again. And I'm, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm planning to keep doing this for a long time. So you're doing pretty much a non-clinical job and a clinical job, right? But mostly non-clinical at this point. Yeah, mostly non-clinical. Yep. Have you noticed a difference? Like, you know, I mean, I'm wondering, like, do you have professional contacts that aren't SLPs, like that are business people, non-clinical people? Like, have you noticed a difference in how people interact with you, you know, as, as not, not just as a queer person, but also as a business owner? Like, I'm wondering if you've noticed any sort of like difference in attitude or um, culture being in the non-clinical world. Yeah, I'll say that I love it. I really like the non-clinical world too. I think that there's a lot of SLPs who get to uh, a place in their careers where they're like, let me, I've really enjoyed serving clients, but let me do some other stuff too. Um, So yeah, I I am in lots of different circles. I have, so I'm a, would 
consider myself in many ways like a program creator, like a course creator, right? I create digital products that are available for sale. There's a lot of people like me in different niches. Like one of my best friends, her name is Allie Ball. She teaches food, um, like local food companies, how to get on the shelves at Whole Foods. Like that's the kind of course she teaches, right? I have another friend named Sheena who teaches people how to do calligraphy. And so we were in a mastermind group together. So we all have these different types of businesses, um, but teaching people essentially knowledge and skills like to do something with them. And it's interesting because that those spaces are also um, more straight than gay, I would say. So there's like a handful of like, you know, queer business owners that are kind of part of that. But it is kind of another space that I've had to navigate as a queer person. But in terms of non-clinical roles and whatnot, like that, this is one of the greatest joys too in growing my company is that I've been able to hire SLPs to do non-clinical roles within my company, right? So I have, for example, my social media manager is an SLP, but now she does social media and like some PRN from time to time. My copywriter who writes most of my emails and other stuff, like she's a former SLP. Um, I have a program manager, like I've got several people who are now working for me who are so happy to have non-clinical roles. And like, y'all wouldn't believe, although maybe you would, like the amount of applicants that I get for these jobs because people are so burned out and they want to continue to stay in the profession and they want to be able to serve SLPs. They believe in my mission and the mission of the company and they want to be able to serve, but they are like done in the clinical settings, right? So like one of the jobs had 94 applicants and the other one had 60 something. And so like people are done and they they want to be doing non-clinical things, right? So anyway, that's just been another cool thing to be able to do is to is to to grow a company so much that you can hire people, you know, as full-time employees to, you know, continue to serve more SLPs. Because again, there's only so much I can do myself. I need other people to help me and like what not, you know, better situation than to hire SLPs to do it. The burnout is real. Oh yeah. The burnout is so real. I can't tell you how many times I've Googled non-clinical SLP jobs. Because <laughs> sometimes yeah. it just, you get so stressed out and you're like, I still want to do SLP stuff. Right. But Yeah. I think so. that's every SLP this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't <laughs> surprise me at all that you're getting like between 60 and 100 applicants for yeah. for those positions. Yeah. yeah. That's true. And that's why people are also starting private practices. Like people are like, I cannot have these caseloads. I cannot have because the other reality is that so many people are quitting that then you have to like take over their caseload, right? So so my wife is a pediatric physical therapist who does early intervention. And like, this is what's happening at her job is that all these people keep quitting, but like there's still clients to see. So then everyone else has to take over their caseloads and then that person quits. And it's just this awful spiral right now, right? And so every now and then she's like, none of my people better join your program. Like, don't be doing your Facebook ads to anybody who's going to leave my work. And I'm like, oh my God, like, okay, I won't, but. But also you should Uh-oh. take my But course. also you should pay them more, like whatever. So true. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, we, we kind of talked about a lot, but we always like to ask like big picture questions about our yeah. field. I know that you're like, 
<laughs> doing non-clinical work now, but now yeah. that you've taken a step out, which yeah. is great because you have perspective now, what would your hopes be for the, the field of speech language pathology and, and moving forward? Um, I have a lot of hopes. I'll say one of them is just more diversity in the field. You know, I think that we desperately need that. We've been calling for that. Um, it just, it hasn't happened. And I think it hasn't happened because the powers that be at ASHA are, you know, somehow stifling it, or, you know, there's problems in grad schools. There's, you know, lots of reasons why it's not happening, but I think that that's, you know, something huge that I would like to see changed. I, you know, tag Ash and stuff all the time. I've been um, not shy about my feelings um, with them. Um, and the second thing I'd like to see actually does have to do with private practice. You know, I would really like, you know, in uh, mental health professions, you know, psychology, for example, there's a track to private practice, right? If you hear someone's a psychologist, you might assume that they're in private practice, right? Or that might be something you ask them. And then they say, oh, I know I work in a hospital and you're like, oh, huh, that's interesting. I just kind of thought you were in private practice, right? And so I would love for SLPs to have just more people in private practice. I would like for that to be like a normal setting and not just sort of like a other setting. Like I think we'll probably always have the biggest space like in the schools, but I would really like to see more traction with private practice because, you know, there are, you know, kids and adults who just aren't able to get the amount or the quality of services that they need in traditional settings. And it's, you know, no fault of the of the SLP who's working there. Like they have their hands tied. They can't do their best work a lot of times. But I just think there needs to be more options. Like my whole mission is to help start more private practices because more practices means more services for children and adults who need them. And so I would really like to see us as speech pathologists, I'd like private practice to be, you know, more normal in the settings that people are working in and just be re represented in the numbers that, for example, it is for psychologists. I love that because, yeah, that's not yeah. a thing in grad school. <laughs> You're either told Ooh. hospital sniffs or... Um, schools that's it and yeah, but you're right. never actually unless you're a very specific voice clinic that's yeah. the only time that i've ever heard like in when i was in my grad school experience that i can remember talking about like private practice in that lens yeah i would like it to be more of a thing and i think that this new newer generation of you know like new grads is is doing it sooner and quicker right i think that you know the the younger generation is less apt to stick around in settings that are not serving them. And so, you know, I have a lot of people who, who are joining my programs who are, you know, a couple years out and they're like, listen, I am already burned out and I've only been an SLP for like two years. Like, this is not sustainable. Tell me the ways. And I'm like, happy <laughs> yeah. to do so. <laughs> right? I'm, so it, I'm so happy for that. I'm so happy for that. Cause you know, I want that joke of crying in your car to go away, yes. you know? <laughs> Yes. No, it's true. Like, but it's like, so that's so sad to me. Right. So it's like, you know, if you're in a setting that isn't working for you, create your own setting, right? Create a setting that does work for you and do it that way, because there's only so much that you can do to change. Like, if you know, if you're trying to change these, you know, systems 
that are set up like against you and actually probably against your clients, like you just can't, you probably can't do it. You can try for a long time. You can try for years, but at some point you're going to get, that's what leads to burnout, right? Is not having enough control. And so at some point people are like, I just can't take this any longer. So even just seeing a handful of private clients on the side can also really reduce burnout because then you have, you know, a couple hours a week where you are your own boss, where you're making your own decisions, where you're choosing the kind of cases that you want to work with, right? And so that really can lift people's moods a lot to be like, listen, you know, it may only be three hours a week, but those are three hours that I am doing my best work by my clients and I love it. And I'm, you know, making some good money in those three hours a week that, you know, then when I go to my school and I hate it, like I can be less <laughs> miserable about it maybe, or in some cases yeah. it actually makes people more miserable and then they leave. Then they're like, you know what, I'm going to grow my private caseload. Like I went out of here and it can be a real impetus for people to like, to get moving. I'm like, you're, you're speaking to Natalie and I right now, I can feel it. But, <laughs> um, and then, um, our last question usually is, um, cause we are the queer SLP. What does it mean to you to be a proud professional? Oh, good question. I would just say, um, to not hold back in my life and just to kind of show up as I am and who I am and for everybody, right. Whether it's queer people, but also straight people, right. Like you don't know, you know, who's maybe, um, has a brother that just came out that the family's having a hard time with it or something. Right. Or, you know, um, older people whose, um, kids are, or maybe, um, starting to use they pronouns and they're like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Right. So it's like, it's, it's just nice to be, um, again, a role model, for not just queer people, but maybe for straight people who also kind of need a queer role model, maybe for someone else in their life, right? Or maybe they're, you know, kind of a late to come out person, right? Well, then they look back and they're like, oh my gosh, I remember Jenna. That was a long, I remember her from grad school. Oh my gosh, right? And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's part of being a proud professional is just to um, whether it's in my, you know, my work life, my, you know, my podcast life, my, you know, the programs I create, like, you know, I take me as I am. Right. And if you, I mean, I post queer stuff on my Facebook or uh, Instagram all the time. And like, if you unfollow me, that's awesome. Like, I don't need, I don't need followers who are going to not like me, like go somewhere else. Right. And so I think that's a big part of it too. So, um, also, to wrap up, how can people find you out there in the world? You've mentioned pages, Instagram pages and web pages. Yeah. Tell us all about it. I'll tell you all about it. So for Instagram people, you can find me. I'm at independent clinician. Give me a follow. Send me a message. Tell me you heard the podcast and what you thought. Um, if you are in your podcast listener, because you're listening to this podcast. So um, the Private Practice Success Stories podcast is the name of my podcast. And we I interview successful private practitioners with all types of practices. I often say that there's no one way to have a private practice. And so I really show that by the people who I interview. Um, if you're a Facebook kind of a person, I have an awesome Facebook group called the SLP and OT, Private Practice Beginners Facebook group, which has 21,000 people in it. There's a lot, you know, private practice is kind of like a hush-hush thing still in a lot of ways. 
And so it's a really robust community of people who are talking about private practice. So um, Instagram is probably the, the best place at independent clinician, but also the um, uh, SLP and OT private practice beginners Facebook group. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jenna, for being on our show. Um, we're, we were just so blessed. So again, thank you for being with us and sharing your story. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on as a guest. And I just want to say thank you for having this podcast, right? This is not something that, you know, I remember years and years ago at ASHA seeing people with like little rainbow things on their little ASHA name tags and whatnot, right? But like, you know, to have a, a podcast, that's a, also a pretty like public thing. And to have guests come on and tell their stories, I think that's also just really, really good for visibility. So so thank you for having this podcast. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.